SeaWorld approached me because they had some manta rays that were getting very sick and they had a manta ray expo, lots of manta rays and there was about three or four dying every day because they couldn't get this medication into the manta rays because the tablet kept dissolving before it went into the stomach. So it dissolved in the water. So they asked me to put that antibiotic into a special capsule that didn't dissolve in water. And as soon as it, they got it in there and swallowed it, it saved a lot of the manta rays from dying. Hi, I'm Jack Hammond, compounding pharmacist and proprietor at AC Farm Queensland. And you're listening to the Pharmacy Business and Career Network podcast. Welcome to the Pharmacy Business and Career Network podcast, brought to you by the Pharmacy Guild of Australia, focusing on pharmacy management and ownership. The PBCN podcast supports the improvement and growth of your business performance with insights and advice from a range of industry professionals. The PBCN podcast, supporting your journey every step of the way. Nowadays, most medication is mass-produced, but what if a patient has a condition where the stock standard medicines just don't work? That's where our compounding pharmacists step in, and today we're diving deep into the fascinating world of compounding. How a customised medication's made, how a complex compounding request handled, and what actually goes into setting up a compounding pharmacy. In this episode, we hear from Jack Hammond, a compounding pharmacist with over 18 years of experience across manufacturing, cosmetics, veterinary, nutrients, children's and geriatric compounding. It's fair to say Jack can help with all compounding inquiries. Here's Jack. Jack, it's nice to have you on the podcast today. I know you are quite passionate about compounding, so I'm really looking forward to hearing more about it. But first, just to kick things off, talk to us about becoming a pharmacist yourself, because when becoming a pharmacist, we know that there's many different paths that people can take, but yours has led you to compounding. What was it about compounding that that interested you and attracted you? I first started my love of compounding at universities. When I was at school, I was great at sciences, so I love medical science. Both my parents are doctors. I thought getting to the medical field would be something to do with the family as well as interesting for me. However, they both told me not to become a doctor. When I was when I was looking at my options at uni, I saw that there was pharmacy. There was a new Master of Pharmacy degree at Griffith, and I thought, why not? I'd love to jump into that. And compounding wasn't on my mind at the time. It was just being becoming a pharmacist. But as I started to get into, I had a job in a pharmacy on the weekend. They were getting, they were getting lots of um, inquiries about certain compounding items. And my mother was also involved in specialised women's health. So she actually had to send her items or send her customers to get the items from America because there weren't many compounding pharmacies in Australia back then. So I said, why aren't there? Why don't we get some more compounding pharmacies in Australia? And that's what sort of led me to go into this, this field. I really enjoyed the fact that we're customising medications. It's not a, just a one-size-fits-all type of product. And it was really helping people. And having them to wait two or three weeks for it to come back from the, the States, I decided I'd like to get into that field. When I started my pre-reg, I just realised that retail pharmacy wasn't um, a very good fit for me. I didn't like selling band-aids and the, the off-the-shelf vitamins, water bottles and all that sort of stuff. I really just enjoyed customising medications for patients and educating doctors on the fact that you can make a medication for people that if, if, if one size doesn't fit all, then what about those people that it doesn't fit? If they can uh, be able to have that option, then that's what really 
attracted me to, to compounding. I love any story where somebody looks at a market and can see needs, wants and problems that aren't being addressed and then comes to that market with a solution because it usually leads to success. So well done. Right off the bat, I would love for you to spend a little bit of time talking about any common misconceptions about compounding that you think we should really have cleared up early on before we talk any more about compounding. Yes, I find that when it comes to compounding, there's misconceptions from doctors, misconceptions from patients, and as well as retail pharmacists. One of the ones would be the medication is unsafe. So they believe that the medication isn't safe for us to compound, whereas we always adhere to strict quality and safety guidelines. We have SOPs, we have substance management plans, and we also ensure that we purchase our ingredients from a TGA facility. They, the, the, those TGA facilities will test all the ingredients before we receive it into, the, into our um, pharmacy. The, the medication is safe. If the doctor's prescribed it and we can get it from a TGA facility and we've checked, done all of our checks on, on that medication, then we can compound it. I think another thing would be that people believe that compounding medication is only for alternative medicine. And that's not the case either. So we do everything from, we've got capsules that we make for dogs. We have ingredients that we have to compound into a different formulation because a customer can't take it or maybe the strength is not manufactured already by the companies. It's not just alternative medicines. We do vitamins, we do hormone replacement, we do hair loss solutions, we do lots of things. That's a common mis misconception. They, they just think we just do alternative products. Another thing, maybe they think that our medications are less effective and that's sometimes they think, oh, well, we didn't put the, the right amount in. Now, we have strict, strict guidelines, SOPs, We've got lots of checking procedures to make sure that the right amount of ingredients are going into each product. And we have pharmacists that check off both the formulation before it goes in. They check off the ingredients that are getting made in the lab, and then they check it as it goes out to make sure it complies. Yeah, I mean, it's not less effective at all. And it's one of those things where people think that because we're compounding pharmacies, they say that we're not regulated. Whereas we do have a lot of regulations that we have to abide by. However, the, the regulations can be slightly lax because of the different health boards. So in Queensland, I find that the, the Queensland Health Board don't really have a grasp of compounding yet. They don't really know what it's about. When they do come in to inspect our facility, they look around and go, wow, what's this? Like they're so used to going to a pharmacy seeing the items on the shelf and seeing going through the processes there. Whereas us, they come in and they're like, oh, I don't have a clue what, what I'm actually looking at here. And I understand is it, I've always been self-regulated, but we do have the pro professional practice standards. Uh, we've got the AMI and I've got lots of consulting professional pharmacists or compounding services that I can, I can go to, like our, our suppliers, Medisca, um, there's a, a company called Verified Compounding that we use to make sure that all of our standards are, are being set. The only other thing, only other misconception that I can see would be that any pharmacist can compound and any pharmacist can compound. However, there's a lot of, a lot of training that needs to be done before they can start compounding. It's not as simple as saying, oh, well, I can see that there's a lot of money to be made in compounding, so I'll just go and just 
start putting powders into capsules and selling it. I guess they're the main things that, that I can see that are misconceptions about compounding. You mentioned that people sometimes visit your facility and they don't see what they think they're going to see. It's a, it's a different environment. I'm sure people listening would also have some visions of, of what it might look like inside your workplace. I'd love for you to describe it to us in terms of things like layout, what does it look like, and, and how you make use of technology throughout the organisation. We've got a 1,500 square metre facility. We've got a, two large warehouses on either side of our building. It's a standalone building. We've got a tiny little reception. We don't have many retail products at all. We do a lot of skincare products, so we sell our skincare in the, in the retail section. We've got a upstairs, we've got all of our customer service staff. So we've got over seven dedicated staff to customer service. So they're always constantly on the phone, taking orders, creating order forms, speaking with customers and all of those types of things. And then we've got our, we've got four different pharmacist office because uh, we've got four pharmacists that work here. And we've also got a separate lab upstairs that we do our clinic orders. And all of our labs are climate controlled. So we've got each room has to be at a certain temperature, has to have a certain airflow. And we've got, so we've got four separate labs for different things. So we do our hormones in one, one lab. We do our vitamins and capsules in another lab. We do our skincare in another lab as well. They're, they're all separated, so we don't have cross-contamination of ingredients. And each of our labs has specified hoods. So the hood extracts all of the, the powders that are flying around in the air to take it away from the, the staff member that's actually making the product so they don't get contaminated with anything. But we had to design it with specialised floors, coating the walls. We had to make sure that they had a vinyl coating on it so it's easy to wipe down clean all the bench tops were a specific type of bench top so it didn't um, have any problems if any acids hit or, or, or any other products that, that could cause issues with it so yeah so the, the our labs are, are, are being customized we spent about oh, six months just working out the flow of the facility and then we've just got a our postage room downstairs and all of our storage facilities it's quite a large space but we're compounding only we don't do any PBS products or any retail dispensing at all and when it comes to technology all of our scales have a dedicated computer that's attached to it and we have a barcoding system that when the when the dispense tech is actually weighing out a product they scan the barcode to make sure that's the right product they then when they've actually weighed the product they send that to the computer so the, the computer can tell if it's actually received the right amount of ingredients so that's a double checking procedure as well and obviously they would be looking at that and making sure that it's in the right amounts of being weighed up and we have our own custom ordering system that, that that i designed that allows us to have all of our attachments we can go back to it straight away if we've got any issues with batch numbers or products there's a, something wrong with a product or a customer's complained about something from their previous order we can go back to that really easily and, and simply but i had to design that myself because there's nothing on, on the market. There's not many compounding pharmacies, so there's nothing really on the market to do that type, that's that side of things. Very interesting, especially the things like the walls and the bench tops and the fans, things that probably wouldn't pop into your mind around designing compounding areas 
if you don't work in that space. Jack, the art of compounding has a long history. It used to be a pretty common activity for pharmacists before the mass production of medication became just the norm like it is today. How has the role of compounding pharmacists evolved over the years and, and, and what sort of trends do you foresee in the field? I find that the role of a compounding pharmacist now is more complex. There's more medications and more complex problems that we have to address. And because it's starting to become more predominant with prescribing, previously when I was back in, in pharmacy, it was just your cell acid creams, you're mixing up on a slab, whereas we have lots of technology and machines that can help make the product better. So we've got the evolution of, of technology in compounding. I feel that's really helped us benefit, giving a better quality product to the patient. And it's also made it a lot easier on us in terms of mixing a product. We don't have to mix it on, on a slab anymore. We can put it into our electronic mortar and pestle and it mixes it up itself with the right settings. That, that's where I find that we, that's how we've evolved in compounding. The, in terms of the trends or changes that, that, that I see, uh, the trends come and go, especially in compounding. We used to be doing lots of capsules, for instance, and then within a couple of years, it starts to be lots of creams, and then it went to lots of troches, and then it went to lot, back, back to creams. It all depends on what has been advertised to the doctors, what marketing we're doing to, to let the doctors know what products you can do. We've, we've come across new dosage forms, rapid dissolved tablets that we can now make. Used to be only be made by Big Pharma. We can do oral strips as well, so like the Listerine oral strips. So we can put a medication into an oral strip, and that makes it much easier for a patient to take. And that's been a new a new technology that, that we've been able to embrace. So I think that the main changes will be the regulations. I think that they're going to change a fair bit. But as well as I think we might be seeing a lot more techno new technologies coming in to to compounding maybe getting machines that can make gel capsules, things like better skin bases that allow better penetration of ingredients, those types of things. I believe that, that that's going to be one of the main changes. And I also can see something like medicinal cannabis being a lot more compounded. Currently, it's just uh, most of it is the, the, the imports from these and some of the, the, the new companies in Australia, whereas it comes in a, a set, set jar, set dosage said everything, whereas I can see compounding maybe being beneficial with making a customised formulation for people on medicinal cannabis. Very interesting, especially the, the oral strips, because I know my kids aren't big fans of swallowing pills, and I'm kind of guessing there's many other kids out there uh, who struggle to swallow pills as well. And as a parent, it can be hard. Want to try and get medication or medicine into them and, and they don't want to swallow a pill. It doesn't feel natural to them. So that's really interesting to hear that. Jack, compounding pharmacists, we know that you manually make customised medications and creams that typically are commercially available. Why is it that some medications might not be commercially available despite somebody needing it and, and people needing it probably pretty regularly, are there certain conditions that might be more prone to requiring customised medication? When it comes to the, the fact that the medications might need to be compounded because it's not commercially available, a lot of the time it's due to the lack of market incentive. The pharmaceutical companies, they have to do a lot of research, development, 
to put medications onto the market. And if a medication is only needed by a small number of people, then it's not viable for them to be making thousands of them or tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. And even though there might be 100,000 patients needing this medication, it's not viable for them to be making it in terms of costs and all that sort of things. That's where we come involved, something like a medication that was discontinued, Cathodot, which was the migraines. There were a lot of patients that still wanted to take that medication, but because there wasn't a product available anymore and no one was going to make it, we could compound that into a, into a capsule for them. So that benefited them a lot and they continue to get that medication from us. But we don't do, you know, tens of thousands of them. We, we might do a couple of hundred a year, but we can have that, op- that, that um, opportunity to do that because we can buy the powders in smaller quantities. It might cost the patient a bit more, but we can buy the powders in smaller quantities and compound it into, into the capsule. That's probably the main reason why that it's not commercially available. Then you've got the fact that we individualise medications for patients. Big Pharma's not going to do progesterone 225 milligram or different vitamins into different formulations. They won't do that on a per-person basis. And that's what the, the benefit of compounding is. We do it on a per-person basis. We can individualise the medication for them. If they've got allergies or sensitivities to the, the fillers or anything in, in the product, because Big Pharma won't change their formulation. People have, that have allergies to, to or their gluten, for if they're gluten intolerant, they want to be vegan, they, want, they don't want this certain filler in it. So we, have, we can then compound it for them. As well as things like pediatric and geriatric patients, a lot of, them are, uh, a lot of the medications might be required for pediatric or geriatric patients are not the right strengths or dosages available commercially. So we would need to make it in a lower strength or even pediatric, change the flavour or take the flavour out for geriatric patients if they're going to be putting into a, a tube and getting fed that way. So that's one of the other reasons. And also just a, do- a dosage adjustments. When we have to make a medication for a patient that can't really tolerate a five milligram tablet, but it's really tiny, and they need to be only taking 1.25 milligrams or if they can't cut it into that tiny amount, we would be able to put that into a capsule for them. That, that's pretty much the reasons why, I guess, we as compounding pharmacists are very beneficial. And th- I mean, there's lots of medical conditions that are prone to requiring this customised treatment, things like skin conditions where we have to put certain amounts of ingredients into a cream or an ointment or a, a gel for psoriasis or eczema or acne or those types of formulations. And that, that's what we have. We, we can change the strengths quite easily and we can make formula, like com- combinations of, of ingredients that aren't readily available. So, yeah, and then you've got your hormone replacement therapy, which is pretty much um, individualised hormones where they get a blood test and the doctor says, I want X amount of this, X amount of that, X amount of this, and not... None of the patients are the same. They're all different, so they need to be they need to be compounded. And like I said before, children, different flavorings because they don't like the taste of this one, taking out flavors, taking out different fillers or even sweeteners and taking out sweeteners and just there are some patients that require that. And then you've just got your compounded medication like your pain medications. We do a lot of topical pain medications that are not commonly manufactured. And then veterinary medications is a big one because because they have different needs to 
humans and there's not that many formulations for vets on the market, there's a lot of times that vets will contact us and ask us to formulate a product for their patient. I want to come back and ask about animals in a minute. I want to pick up on a couple of things that you've touched on uh, as you've been speaking already. The first is around the steps and the processes because as they are unique and, and made from scratch, the medications, there must be quite a lot to think about to make sure that everything actually ends up the way it's supposed to. What are some of the steps or the, or the processes that are involved in, in creating custom medication when an order comes in? There's lots of steps involved. Most of the time, most of our prescriptions are quite simple and easy when it comes to our hormone replacement and medications that we use uh, on a day-to-day basis. We've already got the studies. We've already got the testing. Whereas when we do get something that's more involved, we need to make sure that we're checking the suitability of the medication for the patient to start with, making sure that we don't have a medication that's already manufactured by a company because we can't compound a product that's already manufactured by um, Big Pharma. We need to check the suitability of the formulation. So we need to make sure that we've got studies to, to prove that's going to be uh, effective and that, that, that there's actually uh, a formulation that, that we can follow, we'll go by. So you've got the APF, we've got our, our consultants that we go to. So Medisca have a good, great um, team that they can, we can just call them up and say, hey, this is the new medication. We've never done this before. What are the what are the steps involved for us to make this medication, and can we actually make this medication? Then we have to make sure that the product is available from a TGA wholesaler. So a lot of uh, a lot of times we'll get an uh, inquiry, and we can't actually get the product in because it's not available. Um, and then we just need to make sure that when we're doing a custom formulation, we need to make sure with a capsule that that we've got, we need to know if it's slow release or if it's delayed release or if it's immediate release. We need to know what capsule size we can put the powder into. So we need to, to check out the density of the actual powder that comes in and we need to work out how much will actually fit inside a capsule before we can actually create a formula. And then when, when it comes to things like creams, we need to make sure there's a suitable wetting agent. We need to make sure that we're using the right wetting agent as well and that we're using the right base um, for it to be delivered appropriately. Listening to you speak there, there seems to be a lot of work that goes into before and, and after what I would imagine is the actual step of putting the medication together. What do you think the ratio is? I would say that it's, it's about 50-50 at the moment. We've got a lot of things that we have to, to look into to make sure that it, it's suitable for the patient because the patient's our number one priority. If we get a, a, a formulation that the doctor's ask for and we don't think it's suitable then we would let the doctor know and say unfortunately i don't think that we're going to be it's going to be effective it's not going to work or it's probably not suitable and maybe you can think of an alternative to to use but that comes with every prescription we have to make sure that there's there's a a need for it um there's no other um, products available that that could be suitable that's already manufactured and yeah but they're just there's so many different things involved whether it be Petrochias, creams, capsules, pessaries, rapid dissolved tablets, those types of things. So there's a lot involved. The other one I wanted to pick up on that you've touched on a little bit earlier is is the rules and the regulations. Because even with normal medications, those that, for want of a better word, normal, aren't compounded, there's lots of rules and regulations to ensure that the medication is safe and it's taken in an appropriate way by the patient. 
when you're making a medication, especially one you've never made before, how do you ensure the safety and the accuracy of the medications that you're preparing? What I was touching on before about the looking for a suitable formulation, checking with checking studies to make sure that there's been a study on that medication being compounded. And then if we are dealing with a unique requirement, I usually reach out to someone like Mediska. So they've got training and formulation support. They've got a massive team of experts, pharmacists and those alike. They can advise me on relevant standard operating procedures. They help me adjust the formulations. They make sure that it's, it actually is safe and effective when we're actually compounding it. And we just make sure that if, if we can first find a formulation that has a study already involved with it, then we would go by that formulation. If it's not, then we would, I would consult them to, to confirm that this is going to be effective and advise the patient if it's not going to be and advise the doctor. So there's a lot of checks involved. We, we need to look at scientific evidence for their stability. We have to look at the expiry dates for the formulations, all that sort of thing. So yeah, that, that's pretty much how we ensure the safety and accuracy. The other one is animals and vets. You mentioned it briefly before, which is interesting because most people would think that the pharmacy is just for humans, but compounding pharmacists also obviously make medications and and creams for animals. Is the process really any different when dealing with a compounding request for an animal versus a human patient? Yeah, it's very different. We've got animals that certain animals cannot take certain medications. For instance, cats can't take paracetamol. Dogs can't take ibuprofen. There's also the fact that we've got flavor, different flavors that we have to make sure that certain animals don't like certain flavors. You've got horses that like honey and, and barley flavor. And obviously with dogs and cats, you've got to make sure you've got the right flavors. Cats, we would do a fish flavor or dogs, we would do a beef flavor or liver flavor or chicken flavor. That Dogs love the chicken flavor. So that, that can be a challenge. But also the dosage form needs to be considered. So cats, Cats are very fussy, so even a flavoured medication for cats can be very difficult because they can pick up the taste of the medication. And then as soon as they do that the first time, they're not going to take it again. Sometimes we would, there's there's certain medications that we can actually apply to the inner ear of the cat. So they just rub it into the ear like they're just giving them a massage. And that can deliver medications into the cat and the cat doesn't even know. There's lots of different dosage forms that we can use. We've got dogs that, that... are fine with sort of flavoured suspensions and sometimes a capsule. If we can make it small enough, they can they can give it to the dog. Horses, we would prefer to just be doing like a powder and they would put that into the feeds because they're not as fussy. But yeah, there's different requirements in terms of making sure that A, it's safe for the animal, the animal's going to take it and it's the best dosage for that animal. But it's very different to human compounding. Super interesting. I'd imagine it'd be pretty easy to create medications for goats because goats just pretty much eat anything. I guess so. But then again, I've I've never actually dealt with a goat before. But a lot of the time we just speak with the vets and say to them, what's this goat's favourite taste? What what do they eat a lot of? And what do they prefer? So Because most of the owners of those animals will tell the vet and say, oh, he doesn't like this or he loves apples. We can do like an apple flavour or something like that. We've got to speak with the vet and discuss the best options for them before we go ahead and compound something. Very, very interesting. Jack, I can imagine that the difficulty between compounding requests can differ significantly, whether it's for humans or animals. 
Because after all, you are creating medications that aren't really available anywhere else. What are some of the most challenging or, or, or complex compounding requests that you've encountered in your career and, and how have you addressed them? I've had a long career and I've, I've had lots of challenging requests. Just off the top of my head, I'm thinking that one of the ones was just being asked to replicate a product that had been discontinued. It was a cream that was made oh, yonks ago and they said they wanted the exact same formulation. So I had to pretty much research the ingredients, see how they could be formulated into, in, into the product, check with my, my consultants about it as well, and try to replicate it as much as, as best as possible. And sometimes you might be lucky to find an old formulation on Google that you can go off and look at and see these are the ratios of ingredients, but really you, you've got to do it yourself and you've got to basically just make sure that they can be formulated to, to address that patient's need. Usually I would say to the patient, I can't get it 100% exact to those specifications, but having the ingredients in there and knowing the way it feels, the look of it, the texture, that sort of thing, I can try to formulate a product. And I think the other of the hard ones, formulating products from one dosage form into another. So whether it comes only as a tablet and the only way we can actually get it, get that active ingredient is by a tablet form, making sure that we put it into the, if they want to take it from a tablet and they want to put it into a suspension or a syrup or something like that, we need to make sure that tablet and all the excipients in that tablet are going to be fine to be putting into a certain base. We have to do a lot of research into that as well. As you said before, you've had a long career in the industry. And so I would imagine you've had lots of experiences where compounding has played a huge part in a patient's health or, or their quality of life. Do you have any memorable cases or experiences you can share with us? I've come across a patient's husband that's actually called me. She was on hormone replacement and the patient's husband actually called me to say, thank you so much. You've actually saved my marriage because she, he said that, that she was during menopause. It was just crazy times. And as soon as she started taking this medication, she was a changed person, he said. So, I mean, that, that's a good experience for both me and him and her. And as well as I've had interactions with when it comes to the veterinary side of things as well. SeaWorld approached me because they had some manta rays that were getting very sick. And they had a manta ray expo with lots of manta rays. And there was about three or four dying every day because they couldn't get this medication into the manta rays because the, the, the tablet kept dissolving before it went into the stomach. So it dissolved in the water. So they asked me to put that antibiotic into a special capsule that didn't dissolve in water. And as soon as it, they, they got it in there and swallowed it, it, it saved a lot of the manta rays from, from, from dying. And then they approached me about some dolphins that they had that were eating the seaweed and they were having problems digesting the seaweed. So I had to put a, a digestive enzyme into a capsule so they can give to the dolphins so they would allow them to better digest the, the seaweed. I think they're the, the most memorable cases that, that, that I've come across. Jack, you're not only a compounding pharmacist, but you're also the owner of a compounding pharmacy. They're quite often two distinct things. We've already touched on quite a few things that a compounding pharmacist might have to think about or deal with day to day, and you shared some great stories and experiences. But if we take it a step further, what was involved in and what is involved in actually setting up a compounding pharmacy? And it'd be great if you could 
Talk about some of the most important things a compounding pharmacy owner needs to think about or, or take into consideration that might differ slightly from a regular pharmacy in maybe a retail setting. It is completely different from regular pharmacy and, and like retail pharmacy. They've got to have uh, specific spaces set up, dedicated lab, correct equipment, and extraction hoods, all the gear to protect their staff when they're making the product. There's a lot involved in setting up a compounding pharmacy. So they've got to make sure they've got enough space. They've got to, got to have support from their wholesalers, getting training, advice, all that sort of thing. They need to make sure they've got dedicated customer service staff as well because there's lots of customer service involved, speaking with customers, ensuring that they're getting the right thing, ensuring that they're, they're well aware of what they're taking. And then they also need to make sure that they've got the right SOPs for each process. That's a big thing where we've, we've spent years setting up SOPs for every single process in the pharmacy and the, for the training of all staff as well. But I think one of the things, if you've wanted to be, be an owner of a compounding pharmacy, you've got to understand that the dynamics are completely different. Wages are going to be a lot higher because it's extremely labour intensive. However, the gross profit of the product is also going to be higher. But that's, that they need to be able to have a... The quality product that's made in a good lab, customer service, and just ensuring that they've got the right pricing so it's not too expensive for patients, but also is covering the, the cost of ingredients, labour, and making them a little bit of profit as well. Great insights. Last question, Jack, as we start to round this up. There might be a few listeners interested in either pursuing a career in compounding or even then taking that next step and owning a compounding pharmacy themselves, what advice would you give them and, and, and what sort of skills or qualities do you believe are essential for success in the field? As it is completely different to regular pharmacy, I think they need to have that mindset that they, they want to be involved in formulations, they want to be involved in calculations, they need to be able to adapt and think outside the box. So there's lots of training involved. It would be great for, for, for them if they, most of the time I get compounding pharmacists that they were just sick of retail. They didn't like the to flick and stick module that everyone portrays us as doing, but they were just wanting to get away from that side of things, get into the real pharmacy compounding side of things with formulations, calculations, speaking with customers about unique problems and ways that we can actually think about to help them get through that, find the right product for them, basically. Jack Hammond, proprietor and compounding pharmacist at AC Farm Gold Coast Queensland branch. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your expertise and experiences and advice around compounding. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And there you have it, a glimpse into the constantly evolving realm of compounding pharmacy. A big thank you to Jack for sharing his expertise on compounding today. It's professionals like him who make a real difference in the lives of those whose medical needs go beyond the standard options, including animals. If you are interested in compounding or opening your own compounding pharmacy, I hope you have found this episode insightful and good luck on your journey. I've been your host, Daniel Oyston, and you've been listening to episode 134 of the PBCN podcast. The PBCN Podcast, supporting your journey every step of the way. For more resources, to access support or advice, or to view this episode's show notes, visit guild.org.au.